Letter six, part two of A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains by Isabella L. Bird. Part two of Letter six. Estes Park, September twenty eighth. I wish I could let those three notes of admiration go to you instead of a letter. They mean everything that is rapturous and delightful. Grandeur, cheerfulness, health, enjoyment, novelty, freedom, and so on and so on. I have just dropped into the very place I have been seeking, but in everything it exceeds all my dreams. There is health in every breath of air. I am much better already, and get up to a seven o'clock breakfast without difficulty. It is quite comfortable, in the fashion that I like. I have a log cabin, raised on six posts, all to myself, with a skunk's lair underneath it, and a small lake close to it. There is a frost every night, and all day it is cool enough for a roaring fire. The ranchman, who is half hunter, half stockman, and his wife are jovial, hardy Welsh people from the Landberries, who laugh with loud, cheery British laughs, singing parts down to the youngest child, are free-hearted and hospitable, and pile the pitch-pine logs halfway up to the great rude chimney. There has been fresh meat each day since I came, delicious bread baked daily, excellent potatoes, tea and coffee, and an abundant supply of milk-like cream. I have a clean hay-bed with six blankets, and there are neither bugs nor fleas. The scenery is the most glorious I have ever seen, and is above us, around us, at the very door. Most people have advised me to go to Colorado Springs, and only one mentioned this place. Until I reached Longmount I never saw anyone who had been here, but I saw from the lie of the country that it must be the most superbly situated. People said, however, that it was most difficult of access, and that the season for it was over. In traveling, there is nothing like dissecting people's statements, which are usually colored by their estimate of the powers or likings of the person spoken to, making all reasonable inquiries, and then pertinaciously but quietly carrying out one's own plans. This is perfection, and all the requisites for health are present including plenty of horses and grass to ride on. It is not easy to sit down to write after ten hours of hard riding, especially in a cabin full of people, and wholesome fatigue may make my letter flat when it ought to be enthusiastic. I was awake all night at Longmount, owing to the stifling heat, and got up nervous and miserable, ready to give up the thought of coming here, but the sunrise over the plains, and the wonderful red of the rocky mountains, as they reflected the eastern sky, put spirit into me. The landlord had got a horse, but could not give any satisfactory assurances of his being quiet, and being much shaken by my fall at Canyon, I earnestly wished that the Greeley Tribune had not given me a reputation for horsemanship, which had preceded me here. The young men who were to escort me seemed very innocent, he said, but I have not arrived at his meaning yet. When the horse appeared in the street at eight-thirty, I saw to my dismay a high-bred beautiful creature, stable-kept, with arched neck, quivering nostrils, and restless ears and eyes. My pack, as on Hawaii, was strapped behind the Mexican saddle, 
and my canvas-bag hung on the horn, but the horse did not look fit to carry gear, and seemed to require two men to hold and coax him. There were many loafers about, and I shrank from going out and mounting in my old Hawaiian riding-dress, though Dr. and Mrs. H. assured me that I looked quite insignificant and unnoticeable. We got away at nine, with repeated injunctions from the landlord in the words, "'Oh, you should be heroic!' The sky was cloudless, and a deep brilliant blue, and though the sun was hot, the air was fresh and bracing. The ride for glory and delight I shall label along with one to Hanalei, and another to Mauna Kea, Hawaii. I felt better quite soon. The horse in gait and temper turned out perfection, all spring and spirit, elastic in his motion, walking fast and easily, and cantering with a light, graceful swing as soon as one pressed the reins on his neck, a blithe, joyous animal, to whom a day among the mountains seemed a pleasant frolic. So gentle he was, that when I got off and walked, he followed me without being led, and without needing any one to hold him, he allowed me to mount on either side. In addition to the charm of his movements, he has the cat-like, sure-footedness of a Hawaiian horse, and fords rapid and rough-bottomed rivers, and gallops among stones and stumps, and down steep hills, with equal security. I could have ridden him a hundred miles as easily as thirty. We have only been together two days, yet we are firm friends, and thoroughly understand each other. I should not require another companion on a long mountain tour. All his ways are those of an animal brought up without curb, whip, or spur, trained by the voice, and used only to kindness, as is happily the case with the majority of horses in the western states. Consequently, unless they are broncos, they exercise their intelligence for your advantage, and do their work rather as friends than as machines. I soon began not only to feel better, but to be exhilarated with the delightful motion— the sun was behind us, and puffs of a cool, elastic air came down from the glorious mountains in front. We cantered across six miles of prairie, and then reached the beautiful canyon of the St. Vrain, which, towards its mouth, is a narrow, fertile, wooded valley, through which a bright, rapid river, which was forded many times, hurries along, with twists and windings innumerable. Ah, how brightly its ripples danced in the glittering sunshine! and how musically its waters murmured like the streams of windward Hawaii. We lost our way over and over again, though the innocent young men had been there before. Indeed, it would require some talent to master the intricacies of this devious trail. But settlers making hay always appeared in the nick of time to put us on the right track. Very fair it was, after the brown and burning plains, and the variety was endless. Cottonwood trees were green and bright. Aspens shivered in gold tremulousness. Wild grapevines trailed their lemon-colored foliage along the ground, and the Virginia creeper hung its crimson sprays here and there, lightening up green and gold into glory. Sometimes from under the cool and bowery shade of the colored tangle we passed into the cool St. Vrain, and then were wedged between its margin and lofty cliffs and terraces of incredibly staring, fantastic rocks, lined, patched, and splashed with carmine, vermilion, green of all tints, blue, yellow, orange, violet, deep crimson, coloring that no artist would dare to represent, and of which in sober prose I scarcely dare to tell. Long's wonderful peaks, 
which hitherto had gleamed above the green, now disappeared, to be seen no more for twenty miles. We entered on an ascending valley, where the gorgeous hues of the rocks were intensified by the blue gloom of the pitch pines, and then taking a track to the northwest, we left the softer world behind, and all traces of man and his works, and plunged into the rocky mountains. There were wonderful ascents then, up which I led my horse, wild, fantastic views opening up continually, a recurrence of surprises, the air keener and purer with every mile, the sensation of loneliness more singular, a tremendous ascent among rocks and pines, to a height of nine thousand feet, brought us to a passage seven feet wide through a wall of rock, with an abrupt descent of two thousand feet, and a yet higher ascent beyond. I never saw anything so strange as looking back. It was a single, gigantic ridge which we had passed through, standing up knife-like, built up entirely of great brick-shaped masses of bright red rock, some of them as large as the Royal Institution, Edinburgh, piled one on another by titans. Pitch-pines grew out of their crevices, but there was not a vestige of soil. Beyond, wall beyond wall, of similar construction, and range above range, rose into the blue sky. Fifteen miles more, over great ridges, along passes dark with shadow, and so narrow that we had to ride in the beds of the streams, which had excavated them, round the bases of colossal pyramids of rock, crested with pines, up into fair upland parks, scarlet in patches with the poison oak, parks so beautifully arranged by nature, that I momentarily expected to come upon some stately mansion, but that afternoon crested blue jays and chipmunks had them all to themselves. Here, in the early morning, deer, bighorn, and the stately elk come down to feed, and there, in the night, prowl and growl the rocky mountain lion, the grizzly bear, and the cowardly wolf. There were chasms of immense depth, dark with the indigo gloom of pines, and mountains with snow, gleaming on their splintered crests, loveliness to bewilder, and grandeur to awe, and still streams, and shady pools, and cool depths of shadow, mountains again, dense with pines, among which patches of aspen gleamed like gold, valleys where the yellow cottonwood mingled with the crimson oak, and so, on and on through the lengthening shadows, till the trail, which in places had been hardly legible, became well defined, and we entered a long gulch with broad swellings of grass belted with pines. A very pretty mare, hobbled, was feeding. A collie-dog barked at us, and among the scrub, not far from the track, there was a rude, black log cabin, as rough as it could be, to be a shelter at all, with smoke coming out of the roof and window. We diverged towards it. It mattered not that it was the home, or rather den, of a notorious ruffian and desperado. One of my companions had disappeared hours before. The remaining one was a town-bred youth. I longed to speak to some one who loved the mountains. I called the hut a den. It looked like the den of a wild beast. The big dog lay outside it in a threatening attitude and growled. The mud roof was covered with lynx, beaver, and other furs laid out to dry. Beaver paws were pinned out on the logs. A part of the carcass of a deer hung at one end of the cabin. A skinned beaver lay in front of a heap of peltry just within the door, 
and antlers of deer, old horseshoes, and offal of many animals, lay about the den. Roused by the growling of the dog, his owner came out, a broad, thick-set man, about the middle height, with an old cap on his head, and wearing a grey hunting-suit, much the worse for wear, almost falling to pieces, in fact. A digger's scarf knotted round his waist, a knife in his belt, and a bosom friend, a revolver, sticking out of the breast-pocket of his coat. His feet, which were very small, were bare, except for some dilapidated moccasins made of horse-hide. The marvel was how his clothes hung together and on him. The scarf round his waist must have had something to do with it. His face was remarkable. He is a man about forty-five, and must have been strikingly handsome. He has large grey-blue eyes, deeply set, with well-marked eyebrows, a handsome aquiline nose, and a very handsome mouth. His face was smooth-shaven, except for a dense moustache and imperial. Tawny hair, and thin, uncared-for curls, fell from under his hunter's cap and over his collar. One eye was entirely gone, and the loss made one side of the face repulsive, while the other might have been mottled in marble. Desperado was written in large letters all over him. I almost repented of having sought his acquaintance. His first impulse was to swear at the dog, but on seeing a lady he contented himself with kicking him, and coming to me he raised his cap, showing as he did so a magnificently formed brow and head, and in a cultured tone a voice asked if there were anything he could do for me. I asked for some water, and he brought some in a battered tin, gracefully apologizing for not having anything more presentable. We entered into conversation, and as he spoke, I forgot both his reputation and appearance, for his manner was that of a chivalrous gentleman, his accent refined, and his language easy and elegant. I inquired about some beaver's paws which were drying, and in a moment they hung on the horn of my saddle. A propos of the wild animals of the region, he told me that the loss of his eye was owing to a recent encounter with a grizzly bear, which, after giving him a death-hug, tearing him all over, breaking his arm, and scratching out his eye, had left him for dead. As we rode away, for the sun was sinking, he said courteously, "'You are not an American. I know from your voice that you are a countrywoman of mine. I hope you will allow me the pleasure of calling on you.'" Beginning of Footnote Of this unhappy man, who was shot nine months later within two miles of his cabin, I write in the subsequent letters only as he appeared to me. His life, without a doubt, was deeply stained with crimes and vices, and his reputation for ruffianism was a deserved one. But in my intercourse with him I saw more of his nobler instincts than of the darker parts of his character, which, unfortunately for himself and others, showed itself in its worst colors at the time of his tragic end. It was not until after I left Colorado— not indeed until after his death, that I heard of the worst points of his character. End of footnote. This man, known through the territories and beyond them as Rocky Mountain Jim, or more briefly as Mountain Jim, is one of the famous scouts of the plains, and is the original of some daring portraits in fiction concerning Indian frontier warfare. So far as I have at present heard, he is a man for whom there is now no room, for the time for blows and blood in this part of Colorado is past, 
and the fame of many daring exploits is sullied by crimes which are not easily forgiven here. He now has a squatter's claim, but makes his living as a trapper, and is a complete child of the mountains. Of his genius and chivalry to women there does not appear to be any doubt, but he is a desperate character, and is subject to ugly fits, when people think it best to avoid him. It is here regarded as an evil that he has located himself at the mouth of the only entrance to the park, for he is dangerous with his pistols, and it would be safer if he were not here. His besetting sin is indicated in the verdict pronounced on him by my host. When he's sober, Jim's a perfect gentleman, but when he's had liquor, he's the most awful ruffian in Colorado. From the ridge on which this gulch terminates, at a height of nine thousand feet, we saw at last Estes Park, lying fifteen hundred feet below in the glory of the setting sun, an irregular basin, lighted up by the bright waters of the rushing Thompson, guarded by sentinel mountains of fantastic shape and monstrous size, with Long's Peak rising above them all in unapproachable grandeur, while the snowy range, with its outlying spurs heavily timbered, come down upon the park, slashed by stupendous canyons lying deep in purple gloom. The rushing river was blood-red. Long's Peak was aflame. The glory of the glowing heaven was given back from earth. Never, nowhere, have I seen anything to equal the view into Estes Park. The mountains, of the land which is very far off, are very near now, but the near is more glorious than the far and reality than dreamland. The mountain fever seized me, and giving my tireless horse one encouraging word, he dashed at full gallop over a mile of smooth sward at delirious speed. But I was hungry, and the air was frosty, and I was wondering what the prospects of food and shelter were in this enchanted region, when we came suddenly upon a small lake, close to which was a very trim-looking log cabin, with a flat mud roof, with four smaller ones, Picturesquely dotted about near it, two corrals, a long shed, in front of which a steer was being killed, a log dairy with a water-wheel, some hay-piles, and various evidences of comfort, and two men on serviceable horses were just bringing in some tolerable cows to be milked. A short, pleasant-looking man ran up to me and shook hands gleefully, which surprised me, but he has since told me that in the evening light he thought I was Mountain Jim, dressed up as a woman. I recognized in him a countryman, and he introduced himself as Griffith Evans, a Welshman from the slate quarries near Lanberries. When the cabin door was opened, I saw a good-sized log room, unchinked, however, with windows of infamous class, looking two ways, a rough stone fireplace in which pine logs, half as large as I am, were burning, a boarded floor, a round table, two rocking chairs, a carpet-covered backwoods couch, and skins, Indian bows and arrows, wampum belts, and antlers, fitly decorated the rough walls, and equally fitly. Rifles were stuck up in the corners. Seven men, smoking, were lying about on the floor. A sick man lay on the couch, and a middle-aged lady sat at the table writing. I went out again and asked Evans if he could take me in, expecting nothing better than a shakedown. But to my joy he told me he could give me a cabin to myself, two minutes' walk from his own. So in this glorious upper world, with the mountain pines behind and the clear lake in front, in the blue hollow at the foot of Long's Peak, 
at a height of seventy-five hundred feet, where the hoar-frost crisps the grass every night of the year, I have found far more than I ever dared to hope for. I.L.B. End of Letter 6